Whoa, hello everyone. Now Mikey Diamond dropped off. Hey, we are here. It's office hours. The uh, dollop service edition uh, with the connectivity of a champion. We lost Mikey and uh, hopefully he's back. And we have our friend Barud Shaith. He is uh, the founder and CEO of Dupship. Uh, and we want to talk about one of my favorite things, uh, the vision board to a billion dollar valuation and uh, finding and helping so many developers uh, with their billion dollar ideas. Welcome to Office Hours. How are you, Barood? Doing great, doing great. How are you, Dave? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for, for coming. Well, you know, it's an interesting perspective to, you know, as an idea to use something as spiritual or as, uh, you know, vibrational as a vision board uh, type of philosophy on identifying, you know, disruptive product services, opportunities uh, within the context of uh, these type of, uh, of very pragmatic people's developers. Uh, what gave you the idea to kind of shift the paradigm of helping developers in this way? Oh, I think, um, you know, I think we really, uh, so firstly, the company has been around for 10 or 15 years, right? And the word gapshap literally means uh, chit chat in Hindi, right? So it's very appropriate for a messaging platform. I joke joke with people, they should remember gapshap as the next famous word from the language that gave them yoga, nirvana, and kama sutra, uh, which is <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, um, you know, we, we were inspired by, you know, so uh, a while ago, we were inspired by the mobile revolution, you know, mobile phones and smartphones were getting very prevalent all over the world, right? So even people who didn't use sort of the big screen internet were, were sort of using the mobile phone to access the internet. And we realized that really, you know, the, the lowest common denominator way to reach billions of users worldwide, right? Virtually everyone, five, six, seven billion users worldwide was through uh, mobile phones. And the, 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 the common way to do that was using SMS or text messaging, right? So that was sort of the key insight. And I think, and you see that today, right? So as developers try to build out apps and services, that are very popular and widely that that reach out to lots of people they end up having to use messaging and it used to be only text messaging or sms previously but now there are newer messaging channels as well right whatsapp and facebook messenger and others as well but i think it's evolved a lot uh but that was it right really focus on a huge space something that everybody's going to need to use and if you can add value in there and provide some innovative products and services i think that that is one of the ingredients in the recipe for creating a big idea. Can I, um, so you start off with a vision board. So, so people watching, people don't understand. What did you have on the vision board? And then what was the time frame of taking just what was on the vision board and then planning and taking the action? I mean, you're talking about you've got billions, to 4 billion messages per month. That's insane. So what was the time period and how did you construct it all? Right. I think, uh, you know, so in, well, firstly, I don't think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a straight line to, to success, if you will. We've had many twists and turns uh, or pivots, as we call it in the startup world, uh, to get there, right? In fact, in the beginning, it was a consumer service that we launched where users could 
you know, publish and subscribe. It was a little bit like Twitter in the early days, which also was inspired by SMS, by the way, right? So we sort of came out at the same time, except that Twitter was mostly in the US. It became a web product while, you know, Gupshop was in India and sort of remained an SMS product, right? So initially it was a consumer service that actually grew very well, right? To about 70, 80 million users in India, sort of the largest of its kind. Uh, but it became too expensive to monetize and we could not uh, to subsidize and we could not monetize. So we had to pivot to a bit, to an enterprise focused business model. Right. So I wish I could say that, you know, it was all, you know, clearly the upfront vision has laid out. I mean, I think uh, in, in, in startups, you sort of, you know, your, your plans don't work out quite as expected. And then it's up to you to be able to say, okay, well, let's make lemonade out of lemons. Right. I mean, what worked, what did not. In our case, you know, the core technology, the core platform was working very well, but we said, let's find somebody who can pay for it, right, rather than us having to pay for it. That's how we found enterprises instead of consumers who, who wouldn't and and so on, right? So I think, uh, so some, you know, so when you look at it in terms of the original vision, I think certainly, you know, big space, I mean, that's still true. Messaging is sort of the foundational layer, uh, that's still true, uh, but the consumer angle, you know, didn't quite play out and survive, but the enterprise, we switched to the enterprise model and so on, right? So I think, uh, again, I think if you're if you're focused on a big space, it allows you room for maneuverability as you work your way around that. And, you know, Barut, so many people, you know, I deal with so many entrepreneurs and I think, you know, there's many ways uh, to be an entrepreneur, um, but I find that a lot of successful Oh, so Dave said a lot of successful entrepreneurs, and then he cut out. So you said a lot of successful entrepreneurs, and then you cut out. Yeah, so a lot of successful entrepreneurs think, you know, that they can drop out of high school, and it's, you know, education and big company experience isn't essential. But, you know, there's a majority of entrepreneurs that, go to prestigious universities like MIT and Harvard and Stanford, et cetera, and then work for, you know, Wall Street companies and big companies like Citibank and Merrill Lynch, like yourself. What lessons or how imperative do you think that experience of going to MIT, of working for Citibank and Merrill Lynch, uh, you know, how much influence and, and necessity is that in your entrepreneurial journey? Uh you know, I don't know if I if I would say it's a necessity, right? I think see every every journey is different. I think it depends. Uh, by the way, timing uh, often is everything as well. And sometimes, you know, the way uh, the way industries evolve. I mean, they don't wait for when you graduate from college and things like that, right? So I don't know if there's a there's a simple clear cut answer. I think in my case, actually, what I'd say is, uh, you know, certainly look, I. You know, I did my undergraduate school in India. I had I came to the U.S. for graduate school at MIT. Um, so, I mean, in, in some sense, that was a necessary step, right? Uh, and uh, while I'd studied computer science and engineering all throughout, I was very curious about the business aspects of it. So, so Wall Street ended up being the business school, uh, essentially, for me. Um, and meanwhile, the Internet happened, right? So this was in the mid-late 90s and so on. And even though while we were at MIT, we were thinking and tinkering around with like the mobile browser, uh, the early versions of it, even before, you know, uh, sort of it was public information. 
I mean, we knew how powerful it could be, but uh, you know, but but then Netscape happened, and and Yahoo, and Amazon, and eBay, and so on, which just made everybody realize, you know, this is for real, and it's getting more widespread and adopted, right? So, so at that time, we said, look, the, the time is now, uh, and that's where I founded my first company, uh, Elance, right? We started in '98. Uh, which is now called Upwork. We pioneered the gig economy and so on. And then Gupshop is, of course, my second company, right? So, so certainly for me, I mean, the the experience was really useful. I learned, you know, I think everything is a learning opportunity, right? So even when you're not doing, you're building, you're acquiring these skills and components and 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 so on. I think as far as it applies to lessons for new entrepreneurs, um, you know, I think the important thing is, do you do you find a clear idea in a sense that uh, you have conviction about whose time has come all the factors are aligning and so on and sometimes you know that could you have to drop out of college to do that while at other times you know it may not be ready and you're just better off acquire acquiring some skills and experience especially let's say if you're working on a b2b idea or something you need to know about the business you need to know about the domain you need to know the customers and so on right it's really hard to do that straight out of college but, but on the other hand a consumer idea right that you come up with something and your classmates and your friends start loving it and it scales well you know like us like a snapchat or of course you know facebook and others I mean, you got to run with it so you know i wish i could say there was a simple answer it, it just depends it, it depends on the what you're focused on are you staying close to your knitting do you understand enough about it and and so on I like that, but I mean, do you do you feel like because you if you're around, uh, I always believe that people that you surround yourself with will either you know sink you or elevate you, and being yes. around like people that are intuitive and you know MIT or that kind of college, do you think it gives the person advantage, or do you still do you still believe it's the personal journey? I mean, look, Dave's like a perfect example. He always jokes about you know people that didn't get into Stanford, but then he goes and talks at Stanford. And right. I didn't get any degrees, but I help people get sober. So, do you, do you? So, you really personally think it's it's the individual right and their ability to be taught and to stretch and grow? Well, no, no. So maybe I should add, right? It it does take a village often, right, uh, to to scale and build businesses and so on, right? So in my case, for example, I benefited immensely from alumni networks, right, uh, from IIT and from MIT. I mean, when I started Elance, the first sort of five angel investors were my alums, you know, my, my sort of senior <laughs> alumni from school. And by the way, each of them brought in another three or four people, right? So think about it. I was completely new to America, didn't know too many people, but, you know, a lot of my classmates and alums were also in, in the U.S. and they they sort of, we all, you know, supported each other, things like that, right? So that goes a long way. Same thing when you're doing recruiting. It helps if you know people. The, the, my co-founders were literally my classmates from college um, and, and so on, and the word of mouth. And so it's incredibly powerful. That's a huge asset that you cannot, you know, ignore. I think uh, if you didn't go to the right school, now the good thing is places like Silicon Valley and now other places, they're, they're dense enough the way you can attend conferences and events and you can network with people and create this cohort of, of friends and so on right it's not so not as reliable as as alum networks but there are other options as well right now clearly the straight probing the high probability path is is you know if you're at good schools good friends uh, you know good good networks uh, they are extremely invaluable and these provide a lot, a lot of signaling value as well right when you go out 
fundraising, somebody's trying to determine, right? As they say in the early stages, you're betting on the entrepreneur, not the company. Well, you know, have they been to a good school? Did they go through some of the academic challenges and so on? Can they deal with stress? Can they compete? Uh, you know, a startup is a hyper-competitive environment, right? And usually very highly correlated with um, good schools and colleges, but not not exclusively is all I'm saying. No, no, I think I'm glad you made that point because a lot of people, I think, uh, get stuck not not realizing but they still if you if you don't if you don't have the school you've still got to go out and you've still got to go out and network and build your network and not be lazy and depend on the school either so i'm glad you reframed that so people understand both aspects exactly yeah well he absolutely understands it uh baru thank you so much if you want to be one of the billions of people messaging on gubshop.io uh join Barut and his amazing idea of shared experience, dummy tax, situational knowledge, which leads us right into the legend we have next. Barut, thank you. Thank you so much. Founder and CEO of Gupshup, an extraordinary company. Keep up the good work. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Mike, for having me. Bye, Barut. Bye. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm super duper excited. Uh, hopefully, my technology holds out. But Noah Alpert, Noah Alpert's a legend. Uh, he now is leveraging his situation, all his experience. Uh, but Noah, bagels are important in my family. My daughter actually wrote her college essay on bagels. Uh, you are a legend in the entrepreneur world. Built as far as I know, one of the most famous, if not the most famous, Noah's Bagels. Uh, huge acquisition and exit. Um, but my favorite thing, Noah, is that you know the simplicity of bagels. You weren't even in New York. You know, to, to build such a great business outside of New York and bagels, uh, that's that's legendary, uh, you know, and being able to teach others. My first question is, why is it so important? I mean, obviously, you've had this success yourself. Why is it so important to give back with your business advising, coaching and consulting uh, with entrepreneurs and startups uh, to help them? You know, you, you've done it all. Why do you need to give back? Um, I don't know. I'd like to. I'd like to believe. Thank you, David. By the way, for in, inviting me to join you this morning. Um, I think uh, my Jewish tradition informs uh, that kind of behavior. I think um, humanity informs that behavior. You know, we uh, we take and we don't give. It's it's a, it's a real problem, and we're seeing it in, in modern life. And uh, I, I try not to fall into that you know trap. Oh, I have a quick second question before my technology gives out. So I'm trying to squeeze these in. But you know what? You know, you take a simple business like bagels. And, you know, I think you started in Berkeley uh, with Noah's Bagels. Uh, what do you see when you're coaching, consulting? What do you see some of the common lessons that are obvious to you after 45 years of success? You know, and, and I see it as I coach. What are some of the common things that, you know, you sit there and go, whoa, you know, who isn't teaching these kids or who who's out there, you know, misguiding in these principles? What are what are some of those lessons that you could share with us? Um, well, I think we you know, we live in a uh, I heard your previous guest, you know, talking about exits and entrances, fast paced stuff. And um, uh, uh, young people, especially, but entrepreneurs in general that are starting out nowadays, you know, feel like. They're going to hit right away, and they, the patience level isn't there. There's no, there's no real ability to build something brick by brick, um, and slow down and listen and 
pay attention. It's, there's so much going on in their world with the, with the technology um, and the, the mood of the times that uh, thoughtful analysis sometimes uh, lacking. Nice. The commitment crisis, as Dave calls it. <laughs> Not being able to commit and yet get it done. So, no, I have a question. When you, when you originally started the bagels to, to build such a massive business, was that your intention and goal to have such a big... Uh, absolutely, like, absolutely not. Absolutely oh. not. It was one yeah. great store. One great store. That's it. And, uh, and then uh, I, I want to say, you know, I've been given all this credit and to David. And again, thank you for you know, your words, but it really truly was a team effort. Um, specifically my, my brother who actually gave me the idea of bagels and then I ran with it. And then after it was very successful, guess what? He was interested in joining me. It did join me. Um, but, but, but pairing the, this, his skill set and my skill set was tremendous because he had everything I didn't have and vice versa. Um, and then we brought in a team that really taught us um, how to scale and how to do what we needed to do. We had a guy at nine stores that had run 400 Taco Bells in the Southwest region. And so who's going to teach who how to scale this business? Um, but it was always brick by brick. Uh, even um, after my brother joined and we ventured as far away as Palo Alto, which is like an hour away, he actually moved there to make sure that that store was supervised um, properly because that's the food business. That's it's all about, you know, the, the, the experience at that second, at that moment. And so it was a very methodical kind of a, uh, a program. And we only grew at the pace that we could handle. Um, you know, it's obviously so different than the tech, the tech world that, uh, you know, that's, that's the, Majority of the seems like the startups uh, happening today, but I think some of the lessons are tra translatable. Absolutely. One of the things that's so interesting about successful entrepreneurs like yourself is there has to be a blend, not only of patience, you know, of scaling at its own perfect time and right place and oh, utilizing wow. the support of doing so. But to blend that with persistence is truly the unique ingredients that make successful long-term businesses. Um, what were some of the tricks for you or, or mindset uh, that you took? Because you obviously, you know, were very persistent in the business and consistent in the business, which were two important components, but you blended that with the patience to allow the business to mature. You didn't, you know, scale to 600 stores immediately and take on investors and dilute what you were doing. How did you stay in faith of the results while you were giving everything and your brother and your family and your team was giving everything every day. How did you blend those two, you know, counterintuitive uh, components and characteristics? Uh, I, I, it could be just a competitive nature I have um, that, you know, I, if there's a game, I, I, I damn well got to win it or come, come close. Did that, did that hurt your brother and your relationship, though, with him getting involved? Uh, well, it was, let's put it this way, it was complicated. It was complicated. <laughs> and I, we, uh, I started it. He gave me the idea. Then he wanted in. He's five years older. Who's going to be the boss? 
we established this complicated arrangement where he was a licensee and, uh, and I won't go into the details, but it was so complicated. And then he brought in a guy um, that wound up running, being the CEO of the business. Um, and uh, he said, we've got to put this whole thing together to attract, to attract employees, quality people to attract capital, et cetera, et cetera. My brother fought him tooth and nail. I thought it sounded interesting, but we wound up doing that. And it was a great decision. But I, I think that um, we both, my brother and I, sort of figured out how to stay out of each other's way and to, and to really access our, um, our strengths. And, 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 but I think almost more importantly was really attracting and retaining uh, such high-quality people um, and really you know, establishing a, a very strong team culture that was, uh, you know, we had half the turnover rate of, of comparable quick-serve retailers um, and brand recognition in the Bay Area that was uh, second only to McDonald's. Um, yeah. So, you know, we made a, we made a big impact, um, but it was, it was a lot of it was just total team, team pl- playing. I'm, I'm jealous. I, I have a brother that's five years younger than me. I've gone to Wharton University of School of Economics in London, probably one of the best business people I've ever met. And I'm 53 years old. And for the last 30 years, I've tried to convince him that I need his help. And he keeps laughing at me going, there's no way I could ever work with, for, or surrounded even close to you, my brother. And I mean that as a compliment. Uh, and as I get older, I need him more and more. And uh, yet I I, uh, I just can't convince him. So you're a much better uh, younger brother than mine. You're willing well, to sacrifice. No, I went the other way, David. I went the other way. My brother, he went to Stanford Business School. Um, I got a BA, you know, uh, from University of Wisconsin. We talked before about, you know, elite institutions, which mine was sort of an elite second tier unit. He was uh, Brown and Stanford and so forth. Um, but uh, he was the one that came begging at my door, okay, to, yeah. to let me into this business. And I, the only reason I did it was. Um, I was agonizing over this. I was on the phone with my mother, and she says, "You need to let Danny into the business. That's all there is to it." And so, you know, uh, what am I supposed to do with that? So, in uh, he came. Yeah, right. You uh, guilt. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. If he didn't come. I'd still be schlocking bagels right now. I wouldn't be on your show. Let's put it that way. Nice. I have a question. Well, so, I, oh, sorry, 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 Dave. You go. Yo, you go, go, Mikey. Yeah, um, one last question. Um, so I like, there's a great book called The E-Myth, which is about the breakdown of the uh, franchise system. There's the entrepreneur, there's the manager and the technician, and they all work three. Now, who was the creative source between you and your brother? You know, were you the creative one, the big picture, and was he the detailed or was it vice versa? And how did you guys, you know, then build rapport with each other and match those d- differences? I I was the uh, um, it's hard to answer exactly your question. I was the creative one re- regarding the store experience, the the quality of the product, um, the obsessiveness of, of 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 detail, but in a in, in a creative sort of artistic sense. Um, he 
um, and and big picture, um, and big picture. He was also big picture, but in much more in a a, a sort of a um, hands off um, uh, banker type type role. He he saw what was needed uh, from um, an HR standpoint, from financing standpoint. Um, things that were were not my skill set, and and uh, uh, so I, I would guess. I mean, the short answer is I was the creative one; he was the nuts and bolts guy. Good. Everybody needs that. Um, yeah. You know, as you transferred into being a teacher, consultant, advisor, what was the challenge from running your own business to helping other people run theirs? Um. Well, the biggest challenge is, you know, when they don't listen to you. <laughs> and, <laughs> like children, and, like children. <laughs> and you know you're right. And uh, that's very good. That's very, very yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then goes off into the night. Um, you know, you collect your check, which is very nice. Or in many cases, I, I'm doing pro bono work and there's no check involved. With it. it doesn't, either way, it's just... Um, it's 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 slightly frustrating uh, to know that um, you you know that you're right and yet they don't do it. Um, but it's it's also like I just want to get in there and do it for them. Um, you, you know, I, I, you just let, let me just go and do it. And then it's oh, it's not my business. <laughs> I, I get very I get very emotionally involved with these folks, and I you know I really want them to succeed, and. Um, um, and then I have to sort of shut off the, you know, the switch and realize our roles are different. Yeah. It's like be, being a parent and, uh, letting them pay the dummy tax sometimes themselves if they're not going to listen. Um, and real, real quick as we uh, finish up, have you ever had to fire a client? You know, one of the things that I have found really difficult is I never thought I would fire someone that's actually paying me, but have you ever had to fire a client? Um, I, I haven't. They usually leave before you know it gets gets to that uh, you know stage. But I, I'm 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 patient with hanging in there with people because uh, I you know I, I recognize that um, you know a few pearls here and there that they catch that might not help them right now, but could help them in the future. Even though you know sometimes there's pushback, um, it's it's. There's a lot to be, just in the course of the dialogue. There's a lot of learnings on, on on both sides, and I'm learning too, by the way, which I really enjoy. I keep the wheels turning up here, you know, and I'm you know I'm sort of learning about. I actually got on this show myself, you know, with a technology. I mean, nice. there's a few. There was a this and that, and you know, I mean, it's it's uh, <laughs> it ain't easy, my friend. I get it, man. Well, no, Noah, like Den like Dennis Waitley taught me, you're planting seeds under trees that you may never sit under, uh, and they're not necessarily. I think Dave cut out. I think Dave cut out. He said uh, they're not necessarily broken. trees that you'll see that you'll see now, right? So you say. Yeah, I got it. Sorry, I'm I'm learning technology. I got to get speaking engagements where they got better internet. So I stole Mikey's internet. Anyway, before I drop again, my friend Noah, please come back and visit us. You're an incredible guest. I got other shows I'd love to be, but I will tell you, 
the number one thing I take away from this is you're a mensch. And my uncle Eli. That's it's what it's all about, isn't it? You're, you're a mensch, and I appreciate you. Thank you, David. Thank you. I, I think that's what it's all about. It's, it's doing the right thing. That's what it's all yeah. about. Thank you. I, join us again if uh, you need help from a great legend, Noah Alper, uh, the founder with his brother. Uh, of course, the famous Noah's Bagels, just a great entrepreneur, helping people. You know, you could be in all different industries. Bagels, it doesn't matter. You can change the world and impact the world and help yourself. He's a mensch because, you know, able to make a lot of money, help a lot of people and have a lot of fun. And it just, that's the, the kind of mentor I want uh, in my yeah. life. Someone like Noah, just a good, you feel warm when he's here, you know? And I'm a huge fan of his company uh, when he built it. I probably helped build that big acquisition that he got because I love his bagels. Anyway, in the bagels. let's do a takeaway for the day real quick. Unless Mikey, uh, Maddie can have, uh, so, uh, you know, Peter or somebody. Let's. Just go over it. Mike, what's your takeaway for the day? You know what really resonated with me is um, it, it's networking and finding the right people. And the one thing that when we when we, re, we framed it and said, look, you've got to find that group of people to help you uh, build your vision and that. And if you don't have the opportunity like we didn't to go to Ivy League schools, you've got to go out there, take accountability for what you want to do, but but ask for help and really go out there and find that core group that you can give them ideas and stretch it. And I love what Noah said. It was about culture and going store by store, brick by brick, and not rushing. And I think yeah. we rush, you know what I mean? It's like have the vision, but stay in the process, take responsibility, and like you say, be persistent, but also be patient. Yeah, I think you're right. And we'll bring Peter on uh, right now, but there's a saying that I think for young entrepreneurs that I work with, you know, they don't mind working hard. They're not lazy. They, they just mind long. You know, they're so... They just, they can't even fathom how long things to evolve. So, right. um, let's bring Peter on. Like, I got, I, I borrowed, I borrowed Mike Diamond's internet today. So, uh, this uh, speaking engagement, they got the same uh, internet as you, Mike. Anyway, let's get up, Peter, on here. President on of Meta Strategy, <laughs> exactly. He has a new book, uh, "Getting to Nimble: How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader." Uh, and we were talking about hard and long, Peter. So I thought we'll we'll start there because I'm sure to get nimble, you have to understand the concept of acceleration, exponential growth, and compound interest. How long things take, uh, but we can make them happen faster by being nimble, as you state in your book. Uh, so maybe you can go over the five core themes that allow us uh, to let things evolve. Uh, in your book, you discuss those uh, to process technology, ecosystem strategy, et cetera. I was hoping we could start there. And I appreciate you being on Office Hours. That's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And just as you say, yes, to, to be nimble in this day and age is an essential element for what executives can deliver for their organizations and their customers. Um, a large, complex organization has so many moving parts to it. And depending upon the age of the organization may have critical data flowing through technology that belongs in a history museum. And what it means is it requires a fundamental change relative to how they think about people practices, processes, technology, uh, but also ecosystems and strategy, as you mentioned. Each of those need to be modernized for the, the digital age to ensure that 
organizations, especially those born before, but though they're not exclusively those born before the digital age, can better compete in the digital age. And the, the whole notion of nimble is we need to create organizations that, they can, that can themselves seize opportunities readily as they present themselves, as well as stave off issues readily as they present themselves, because the pace of change is such that both of those will be coming at us a lot faster than in the past. And so without modern practices associated with those five categories, the organization, the, the, the enterprise, uh, is likely to have a number of boat anchors pulling them back uh, from the destination that they seek. And, and they won't readily be able to uh, uh, cruise around the issues, the landmines that, that, that they're going to present themselves as well. Each of those are, are essential elements to, to operate in the modern economy. And when you're working with someone and, and they're stuck and they're not nimble or flexible, you know what I mean? What's mm -hmm. the first thing you do to help them like reframe that and get a different perspective and get nimble? Yeah, Mike, I, I so uh, a few different things come to mind. I mean, the, the, the obvious answer is all organizations will begin a journey like that from different places. But there are some essential elements to focus on. I think if your people practices are, um, uh, you know, vintage, if, if you're not operating a, in a way and, and are, are facilitating a culture where you're constantly striving to build the skills of tomorrow as opposed to resting on the laurels of your past accomplishments and past skills, but really, the other things are going to be suboptimal, e even if you're you have the latest and greatest of technology, even if you have, you know, a, a reasonable ecosystem around you. If you don't have great people who are themselves curious or, you know, have a learning agility to them where they are constantly striving to build those necessary skills to better compete in the future, you're going to be operating with one arm uh, tied behind your back, figuratively speaking, going into the future. And that's that's really problematic, to say the least. So I think beginning with a diagnosis of uh, what are what are your people capabilities? Are you building the appropriate skills? Is your org structure reflective of um, a fast and nimble means of, of accomplishing things? Um, do you have a great recruiting pipeline? Of course, <clears throat> I, I, we, we offer this all as, with the, the current backdrop of, of the pandemic and uh, a, a various uh, realities that, that will be uh, different organizations will be going into with the future of work, so to say. Um, you know, every company has a different variation as to what what the return to work will re return to. Forgive me, the return to the office or 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 no return to the office. What that might look like. So, a variety of experiments that are going to add the the dynamism from a people perspective. I would then say, moving on to processes, uh, because processes follow people and they come before very very importantly making technical decisions. Optimizing your processes is a, is a key uh, area to focus on before then saying, okay, the solutions or the you know, suite of, of technologies that we're going to choose, um, you know, having those in the wrong order can actually have uh, a, a lead, lead to an exacerbating of, of some of the issues that I've referred to. And then I refer to ecosystems as, as the next area to focus on, because today competition is much less company to company. It is more ecosystem to ecosystem. Who are you marshalling together in terms of your supply chain partners, in terms of the companies that you're developing joint ventures with, in terms of the various organizations that are helping you bring uh, much needed skills that have are growing demand with with a paucity of supply within your organization, just to name three different vectors of the ecosystem. Are you marshalling the appropriate resources to better compete? And then lastly, developing a nimble means of developing strategy. Strategy at the enterprise level, strategy through to the division divisions or functional areas or or business units of the organization, and then through very critically to the data strategy of the organization as well, that there's a line of sight between each of those and that there's, again, given the fast pace of change, 
that you have the the mechanisms in place to modify that as uh, new realities present themselves as well. And, you know, this idea of technovation, you have a column with Forbes, you have a podcast, uh, accelerated changes occurred, especially with the pandemic. You know, it's like technology was already increased the acceleration of technovation. Uh, but with the pandemic, we, you know, put it into dog ear warp speed of how quickly technology and innovation were occurring, which, you know, for the first time I have people and my, especially my kids reading science fiction, because I don't think our imaginations can keep up with the capabilities of technology. Uh, but for you, you know, transforming business with technovation, utilizing these five core themes, you know, what are some of the commonalities in the column in the, in the podcast uh, it, at its basis that you see foundationally uh, in technovation where things are happening so quickly that by the time we institute or execute, sometimes it's irrelevant. Yeah, you know, one thing that I would add uh, or offer as a response to that is I think those organizations that are most successful are ones that make change a core competence. Change is not something that is natural or even comfortable for most of us. We, we seek routine. We want to get up, have our cup of coffee, have maybe a breakfast that is our only, favorite. Only wet babies like change. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. And, you know, I, I, I uh, was at a conference back when we could uh, safely, hopefully we will soon be getting there soon again. I was at a conference in Mexico speaking, um, and one of the fellow speakers was the chief information officer of Google, Ben Freed. He's been in that role for, for 13 years now. And I asked him, as this organization has grown and become a behemoth, how have you maintained your entrepreneurial edge? And he said one of the key ingredients is making change a core competence, of making people comfortable with the fact that, you know, that change is always going to be coming. And in fact, we need to be, now, now, now I'm, I'm going beyond his ideas, uh, in fact, borrowing from Andy Grove of Intel, that, you know, we need to be our best competitors. We are the ones who understand this business best. And, you know, our products and services, you know, we need to be thinking about what comes next after those, even if it means eroding some of uh, some of the revenues associated with them. And too many organizations, one thinks also of, of the late great Clayton Christensen and the innovator's dilemma, that um, it is so easy to continue to milk the, the, the cow you have before you and try to get every last drop of milk out of her and not recognizing, look, we need to get some other cows in here, so to say, new ideas that will be our next source of, of, of nutrition. And that really does require that we be thinking very creatively about, frankly, even how to compete with ourselves and what changes we need to enact. And so finding people who are themselves comfortable with change, developing great change management, um, you know, uh, mechanisms within your organization, having great communications also, because change needs to be communicated. We're going to change this thing that you've been doing for the past five years, but here are the reasons why. Here's the value we anticipate. Here's what the journey along the way is likely to look like. And there are going to be some hiccups along the way, by the way. Um, and let's, let's, let's meet regularly to, to, uh, to work together to understand what's going well and what's, what, what isn't and how we continue to course correct. So I, I would say that that's really, if I pointed to a a single element that's a thread that runs through a lot of these great innovators. It's a, a constant curiosity and even a comfort with, curiosity about and a comfort with uh, change. I think that's really important because I think most yeah, people, I think like people you say, from an emotional, you're right. I was going to say, we're moving from emotional intelligence to, to adaptability. You know, and there's an adaptable intelligence uh, that becomes a core competency of, the executives and the foundation based on values of the team. Yeah, go ahead, Mikey. Why don't you finish up? 
No, no, I, I love what you're saying, me, and that's I think that's the biggest thing that people are so stuck and they don't appreciate change and they just sit in comfort. And you can't sit in comfort because everything is moving in a cycle and forever changing. And if you're not willing to step into that discomfort constantly and be a student always of whatever's coming towards you, like you say, you can't be nimble. And then you're stuck and then things pass you by, technology pass you by, you get frustrated and then you blow things up. Hmm. Very, very well said. Yeah. I mean, I think that they're the... Uh... So many world-class organizations have gone by the wayside. Once world-class organizations have gone by the wayside due to their inability to change. Uh, you know, I cover several of them in the book. My, my book covers uh, a healthy number of organizations that were once world-class, as well as, of course, a number of them that were looked as though they might be heading into uh, the wrong direction, but through radical transformations ha- are now thriving again. I, I think about what one story that I tell, which is one of my favorites, um, is the best performing stock of the S&P 500 for the 1980s was Circuit City. And they only went to uh, they only went public in 1984. So in less than six years in the public markets, if you participated in the IPO, you got a return of over eight thousand percent for that investment. And think about retail in the 1980s, very capital intensive, location, location, location. You needed stores in a variety of different places. Also, the back uh, the back of the store was was as big as the front of the store because just in time was really just in the early infancy at that point. And yet, because of remarkable customer experience. Uh, Circuit City thrived in ways that other other companies, to say nothing of other retailers, could in the 80s. Into the 90s, they seeded uh, CarMax, among other companies that, that, that grew out of Circuit City. In 2001, they were featured in Jim Collins' bestseller, Good to Great. Eight years after the publication of that book, the company was liquidated. That's how quickly these cycles can go. And we're not talking about a pretty good company. We're talking about the best performing for a decade in the United States. And so if that can happen to an organization like that, who loses a thread, who doesn't quite understand like, wow, that, those great things that uh, got us here may not be the pathway to, to continued success. If you're not oriented towards uh, that, that, that change and need to continue to innovate, well, I mean, uh, it, it, can be, it can lead to existential consequences, to say the least. No doubt. And your book is a must. Your podcast, your column is a must because you are on the cutting edge of getting nimble, understanding how to transform and survive within the adaptability quotient that we need. Thank you so much, Peter. Everyone can reach Peter at themetastrategy.com. Get his book, Getting to Nimble, available everywhere. It was released in March. It's kicking butt. It's a great book uh, with great core themes that you can follow to adapt to what's happening and the speed in which it's happening. Thanks again, Peter. We certainly enjoyed you. Come back and visit us. Oh, I'd be delighted to. Thank you so much for including me today. Great speaking with you both. Awesome. Okay. Thank you for your patience. Take care. All right, Mikey. That was awesome. Did the takeaway for the day. Uh, you know, mine's to be a mensch. You know, everything's so complex. But in the end, if you're a kind person, uh, you know, like Noah, like Peter, um, of course, uh, and uh, Baroud, they're just kind people that are, are literally making a lot of money, helping a lot of people, having a lot of fun. They have a desire that they must be what they can be. They're humble. So be a mensch is my message for the day, my lesson for the day. Mikey, you're a mensch. I can't wait to next week. We're televising this thing. We're going big time. I will see you with the big team. It's Mike Diamond, the Mind Fuel Man, my friend. Thank you for joining me as well. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. I appreciate you. Uh, you know, tomorrow, uh, Friday's training, 11 a.m., Clubhouse, 6 a.m. It's more good news Wednesday. This was more good news. I want to thank all my guests, especially. Most importantly, be kind to your future self. 
and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks, Maddie. Bye.